FASWA is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit saswhat.com. This is Sasswet, a podcast about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove, and I'm joined by my pal Mark Matsky tonight, as well as our guest, Linda Godfrey. Mark, take it away. All right. Linda Godfrey is an author, investigator, and artist. The author of 16 books on strange creatures, phenomena, and people. She's a frequent guest on national TV and radio shows, including Monster Quest Seasons 1 and 4, Lost Tapes, Monsters and Mysteries, Sean Hannity's America, Inside Edition, Coast to Coast AM, NPR, Wisconsin Public Radio, and many more. She lives in the Kettle Moraine area of southeast Wisconsin with her husband and monster dog, Grendel. And Linda, welcome to Sasswat. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Oh, thank you. Hey, we uh, got word today that you were honored by a uh, website, a horror novel review website, and they put you in the top 10 authors of 2015. How's that feel? That was amazing. I was absolutely shocked. I had no idea. And I have to clarify that it was for the American Monsters book, which is not a novel at all. A novel is fiction. And these, of course, are people's true stories of their encounters. So it's not a novel, but a lot of people would consider it rather horrific, you know, to have these creatures lurking around. And, and um, you know, while I always say nobody has been killed or really hurt by one to my knowledge, I always have to add that is unless there are those who didn't live to tell about it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and they're not, they're not in a position to relay their experience are they exactly right yeah. Yeah. yeah and the uh, the actual website is uh, horrornovelreviews.com and the thing that i thought was really good about that review that i related to is the writer really praised your writing ability you know in the review itself thank and, you yeah it said uh, very well written informative and engaging Godfrey's smooth approach earns her a very deserving spot on this list. So, you know, that's something that we have talked about on this program on more than one occasion. We love to talk about our favorite books. And one of the gripes that we have historically had with the Bigfoot field in particular is that there seems to be a lot of self-published stuff Mm -hmm. and in some of those cases, it's fairly clear that there was no beta reader, there was no proofreader involved. Yeah. And and the effect that that seems to have is it's sort of, um, you know, you, you get a hold of that and you start reading it and there's a disappointment factor for, yeah. for people who like to read. So well, it's also I, I it's what, also like a lack of <clears throat> it's a lack of professionalism, too. And it. it in my opinion, I mean, we've talked about this on the show, like Mark said, but in my opinion, it kind of casts a pall on the whole field in general because people think of that kind of amateurish approach then when they you know think of uh, cryptozoological literature i think in general right yeah it's kind of hard and in fact i think i read the other day that the the number one gripe that people have with self-published books is the lack of editing and you know it's kind of a hard thing if you are self-publishing to have a professional editor come in and really do what they need to do for your book can cost you about 3000 bucks for a good editor. It's worth it because it's going to improve your book. But a lot of people who are you know, just wanting to publish their experiences in the field or um, want to get across their point of view or whatever and, and they can't get a publisher or they just want to self-publish, you know, it's, it's become a lot more common these days. Um, they just don't have that 3000 bucks, and they forego it. And there are some good books up out, out there that you can read and, and go through, but you, have, you still have to kind of have these basic writing skills. And, you know, I was lucky. I had 10 years as a newspaper reporter 
with some very exacting editing going on, you know, during that time. So I learned a lot from that and was able to kind of polish my skills. And then having had um, the publishers that I've had, they all have editors that are part of that um, publishing process. And in fact, um, my current publisher, which is uh, Penguin uh, Random House, um, goes through several very heavy-duty edits. And it does make a big difference because um, they're talking not only about the spelling and the grammar, but your organization and, you know, what sounds like it goes and what doesn't and all that kind of thing. So um, anybody who wants, and I encourage lots of people to write books, but I also encourage them to try and try and find some way to get it in the hands of a professional editor of one kind or another because it just brings the whole genre up. It brings that field of cryptid books um, you know, to a point where people can have a lot more respect for the field. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm, I don't want to step on Mark's toes here because I'm sure he has a thousand questions ready. But as long as we're talking about this newspaper stuff, what, did you, what kind of stories did you cover before you got into this? <laughs> well, it was actually one of my first assignments. I had been doing editorial cartoons for this newspaper, <laughs> and that was all I wanted to do. I only got the job with the newspaper because I wanted to do editorial cartoons. I'm uh, My degree is in art education. I've also taught art in public schools um, along the way, and I was real. I love to draw. That's always been my favorite thing. I love humor, and I wanted to do these cartoons and it was so hard to find um, living in small town Wisconsin they want you the cities want you to live there you know if you're doing local cartoons and um, I just wasn't close enough to either Milwaukee or Chicago to do that so I said okay I'll do these for free and then they they liked them and so they started giving me eight whole bucks a cartoon per week which um, and it wasn't that long ago I mean it's not like back in you know depression days so it wasn't much, but then luckily, one for me, um, one of the uh, main reporters quit, and it just worked out that I was offered the job and took it, and I believe that my other big story that same weekend that, this, uh, that the Beast of Bray Road was published was about this elderly couple that played music for the local nursing homes. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you can see, and... And uh, the Beast of Bray Road wasn't even the cover story. What they they made it a center spread. It was kind of a tabloid style of newspaper, and it wasn't just you know like one of these, um, just uh, you know a shopper type of thing. It was an actual newspaper. It was just a weekly. So you know we had a lot of uh, good meaty things, and we had very good staff, um, several editors that really took a lot of pride in in the craft of it and everything, and. It was just unexpected that one of my first stories would be this Beast of Bray Road. And over the 10 years that I wrote for that newspaper, I wrote lots of other different kinds of stories. I probably wrote four or five total. The other, I did a couple of um, updates. You know, every year or two years, I'd do an update on it. And that was it. The rest of the time, I did things like uh, I, I won a national award for my paper on medical topics. I did... Um, uh, social action stories, um, humor columns involving my kids. They couldn't do anything without it appearing in the newspaper. <laughs> Poor guys. Um, you name it. You know, I that's I, I I probably covered. I did skydiving. They they kind of teasingly called me their action reporter because I was the one that went and tested out the local skydiving club and um, did. They've got pictures of me on a jet ski and I did the uh, parasailing and all that kind of stuff. I just loved it. Hmm. But so it, it really ran the gamut. Now, Linda, with the Beast of Bray Road, when you go back and, and look at that book now, um, what's interesting to me is it seems like it's, as much as it is about the the creature or creatures that we're seeing, it also reads like um, an eyewitness account to how a legend is born sort of exactly. in the modern modern media world yes. um what are some kind of takeaway lessons that you learned going through that experience 
Well, I really appreciate that you noticed that point because that was actually part of my pitch to my original publisher because I didn't want to just write a book of, uh, you know, scary stories. I wanted to, I, I considered that no matter what the creature was, at the very least it was folklore in the making, although I think it's much more than folklore, especially now. But I also was observing, you know, all these things that were going on, like uh, politicians were using it to hmm. uh, endorse their candidacy for different things. Yes. And the bakeries were selling werewolf cookies, and, you know, it was part of the iconography of my hometown. And that was uh, the, the imprint that, that um, first published the book um, was actually a history imprint. So that is the basis upon which, you know, I was able to sell that book mm-hmm. to them. I love that iconography of, of however you put that. That was beautifully phrased. That that I, I'm, I'm going to talk real quick about. I just directed a movie called Minerva Monster, which is about this Bigfoot sighting mm-hmm. in a small town. And, mm-hmm. you know, kind of focuses on kind of the same thing. How this local legend became such a... Uh, integral part of the culture of the community and that is that tiny aspect of this entire subject is probably one of my favorite aspects of the whole field in general cryptozoology in general just how how that kind of folklore uh becomes integrated into the fabric of the community and how people different people i guess relate to it yeah and and i was going to say as an investigator I think that's kind of an important thing because you need to go, you know, if there's a place like that where there's a real hot spot and and a real hot legend type of thing going on, you have to try and figure out whether, you know, ongoing cases um, or subsequent cases are being sort of perpetuated by the the promotions Mm -hmm. or whether there honestly is something that continues to happen that um, is underlying all of the promotions. Linda, when you're investigating something like Beast of Bray Road, um, do you? How do you approach it? Are you investigating, trying to get to the bottom of what is behind all this, or are you more of a? I consider myself almost a historian, and I am just retelling or letting the people retell. Actually, in, in the case of Minerva Monster, right. letting the people right. retell the story, or are you actually trying to discover what is at the heart of something like the Beast of Prairie Road? I would say I, I sort of aim for both. You know, I want the people to be telling the story, mm-hmm. um, their own words. I try to be as accurate as I can in getting down what they say happened and, and what did happen. If it's close enough, I will go to the site if it's a, a place that, or, or a place that I can get to where it's fairly recent um, and or it's public where I, I have permission. I will go there if I can. Um, but I also, at the same time, like to, uh, one reason I like to put these into books is because I want to put the sightings in a context. I want people to see the patterns that I'm trying to assemble. You know, I'll map things out. When somebody gives me a sighting, I don't just say, well, here's a man that's a werewolf. I try to say, well, this was, you know, it happened in these mountains where, uh, you know, at the confluence of these creeks and there's this um, cultural context where we, we have ancient burial mounds here. Um, there's an old newspaper clipping from the 1830s that shows something might have been in the area, you know, I try and give um, a richer context and also then relate it to other sightings and whatever else I can find. Because my feeling is that since these creatures, and I'm talking about both Bigfoot and Manwolf and even things like the super large birds, they're, they're elusive enough for whatever reason that it seems really unlikely and more and more, I mean, I've been doing this for 23 years now, and people are still having no more luck getting a good, accurate, clear photo or video of these things than they were when I started. It seems to me that we're more likely to um, learn things by indirectly inferring what they are, by looking for the patterns, looking at the habitats, um, observing the, the recurring characteristics of all of the sightings, sorting them out, you know, and then you can start to make some conclusions, you know, as, and, and it starts with things like, are they all actually the same creature? Can you use the same 
explanation for every single one, and I think probably not. The the, the farther I get, but um, you also. I'm what, one thing I'm looking at very hard in my next book, the one that is due August first, um, which I'm chewing my fingernails over, <laughs> um, is the fact that for a long time it seemed like the um, sightings and reports that had paranormal or odd or unexplainable characteristics were in such so much of the minority that I tended to kind of put them aside. They didn't seem to fit in with my other reports. And then over time, they've accumulated. And lately, um, there are much big there are much bigger percentage of the reports that I get than they used to be. And so I'm finally going, well, hmm, I can't ignore this just because it didn't seem to me that um, it was, um, you know, as likely to be be possible as, as the other reports. And so I'm taking a look at these, what I call the stranger side of the strange creatures and trying to sort them out, you know, into ones that have UFOs associated with them, um, ones that have all kinds of different, you know, mental telepathy, that kind of thing. You know, and some people are going to be screaming because, I mean, there are certain circles where you you can't say the word cloak and (laughs) I'll just say large, strange, furry creature in the same sentence without, you know, just causing cataclysm. Yeah. But I think that it's, it's, you're not, if, if you really only investigate the things that you believe are probably correct, you're not really investigating, you're just sort of playing to your own biases. And... You, in my, I need to get it outside of my own comfort zone and look at these things and and see what I can put together that will allow us to um, at least categorize them. Hmm. Linda, on balance, when you receive reports, if you can throw a percentage out there, uh, what percentage of them has those sort of high strangeness elements versus just you know a fleeting glimpse of a bipedal creature, you know, for a couple seconds. Right. Well, you know, I used to say probably only maybe 5%, a very small percentage, because, um, you know, most of them, as you say, they're fleeting glimpses at somebody driving at night, um, either a Bigfoot or a Wolfman will suddenly rise up or pop out of the forest, run across the road in front of the car. Sometimes they'll stop and lock eyes for a minute and then keep going. Um and even even with the upright dog man, that's not necessarily paranormal. I mean, normally the the eye shine will be the normal canid yellow green. Um, it's not a supernatural thing for any mammal to walk on its hind legs. It can be um, done with just about any animal with the proper training and motivation. Neither of which usually happens in the wild unless they are missing a forelimb or injure their paws. Um, and, and sometimes that does happen, not very often, not nearly enough to explain all the sightings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never had anybody say I saw an upright wolf-like thing with injured paws either. Uh, yeah. they, they occur, but not in the reports. But lately, um, I, think it, I think the percentage is increasing. And not only that, I'm starting to go back at some of these things and take another look and say, wow, you know, when somebody keeps telling, when different people keep telling me that they saw this thing and it locked eyes with them and it seemed to be jeering or sneering and then they got this, their minds are sort of flooded with this mental message, not necessarily in words so much, but they get a very clear picture of what the creature is intending. And it's usually something like, I could come and get you if I wanted. Um, don't tell anybody or I'll come and find you. Mm. Um, I could jump on the hood of your car if I wanted to right now. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And I started thinking, well, man, you know, I mean, I've seen bears in the wild. My dad's from northern Wisconsin. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time outdoors my whole life. Um, I see a lot of deer. I see coyotes. I've never yet seen one of those things and had the feeling that it was telling me it could come and get me if it wanted to, yeah. or I should not tell anybody about it, wow. or that it was angry that I saw it. That, I, I've got a whole category now where those kinds of messages are really clear, and I'm starting to think, those are high strangeness. You know, those, those are really, even though the creature's not disappearing in a big poof of blue smoke or whipping out wings from it behind its back and flying away, <laughs> Yeah, 
it that's it's still high strangeness to communicate a specific mental message to a human being when you're <clears throat> when you're interviewing witnesses i mean you you've probably learned quite a bit working in you know newspapers i would think i did it was good practice right like what specifically i mean if you could recall something do you take from you know working in newspapers to working with eyewitness you know testimony and how how often do you talk to an eyewitness this is two completely different questions but i'm gonna put them together anyway how often do you talk to witnesses you come away from it thinking well this is just fluff or they're just telling me a story yeah um Usually, I weed those out in the initial contact. There are just certain things I look for, and I, I don't claim to get all of them. I'm sure there have been a few that slipped through, and there have been a couple that I alluded to in my books that I wasn't sure, but I, I put it in but with the caveat that, you know, maybe you want to look twice at this one, that kind of thing. But um, it's, it's something that I, I think about a lot. I really do try to vet the witnesses as best as I can, and... When I was working for the newspaper, I probably interviewed one to three people a week for every week for 10 years. So that's a lot of people. And part of it is just the sort of intuitive sense you get for whether somebody's just kind of stringing you along or they're speaking from the heart. Um, and part of it is just asking people to retell you something and seeing if the parts still jibe. Um, tell it backwards or let's start from the back and work back to the front that if somebody's making something up they'll almost never get it right again that way um, you know there are just certain things that you can do and I try to really have respect for the witnesses because I really feel that it's a very very tiny percentage that are out and out trying to you know pull something on me or, or make something up and the people who do come to me are often petrified that people are going to make fun of them. They're relieved to tell it to someone who, uh, they, I hear this over and over, that, that won't think they're crazy. You know, and I always say, trust me, you can't say anything crazier <laughs> than what I've already heard. Yeah. You know, it's it's just not possible. So, um, there, you know, there, there is a lot that, that I did learn on that um, job, and, and it was very good training for what I'm doing now, and, and uh, I'll always be thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Linda, you said something a little earlier about tracing certain patterns and seeing how, you know, various sightings sort of follow contours, if you will. What are, could you identify some of what those patterns might be, um, you know, that, that you've noticed over time? And I'm, I guess I'm talking in a real big picture sort of sense. Um, you know, what are, what are some of those patterns that you can point to to start to make some of those inferences about what's really going on well you know one of the first things that I noticed was that almost every sighting that was reported to me of both the dogman and the Bigfoot and by the way people did start reporting Bigfoot sightings to me almost immediately hmm. uh, and I always kept those in a separate category and so I realized there were both the types of creatures within the same general area although uh, but what I noticed was that um, as I mapped them out you could almost draw a line, and on one side of the line would be Bigfoot, and the other side would be the Dogman. It was like they, they liked the same general area, but they had their own separate territories. Another thing I noticed was that both of them seemed to like to be near water and near deer trails, near places where there were lots of, of deer. So, you know, I'm looking at um, environment and food sources. Um... The Bigfoot seem to be more into marshes and where there's berries and things like that, which is really, really consistent with, um, you know, what we know about other large primates. Um, they're more like an omnivore, um, whereas the dogman seem to be all about some sort of meat source. So um, those kinds of things. And then I started looking at um, things like, burial grounds, they both seem to um, be especially, and especially the, the um, upright canines, seem especially attracted to ancient burial mounds, sacred places, churchyards, um, crossroads, military installations, and then I began to realize in my reading that these were the exact same spots where 
these things had traditionally been seen around Great Britain and Europe and uh, in both places. They have a very long-standing traditions of uh, what are more commonly referred to as uh, phantom black dogs, which seem a lot more on the supernatural side than, say, the upright wolf-like creatures. Mm-hmm. But we do have the things that sound like the phantom black dogs, too. In fact, there's one one category of um, black dog sightings where people will almost always refer to it as Anubis, the mm-hmm. Egyptian god of the underworld, which um, has very tall, pointed, triangular ears on top of the head, jet black, smooth skin. And a lot of times, uh, there's another category that I call um, home invaders, where people will wake up and they're a dog man in their bedroom. Um, <laughs> this almost never happens with Bigfoot. Yeah. And I, I am pretty sure that these are not breaking and entering type dog men. I mm-hmm. think these are clearly on the supernatural side, may not be anything like the ones that people encounter along the highway. Um, you know, they're they're different. But um, it's that kind of thing that I'm looking for. Yeah, that's about the worst thing I could possibly imagine. <laughs> really, yeah. I mean, can you think of something much worse than waking up to that? It's, that is really disturbing, to say the least. Yeah, I've got a, and, and it's second only to the people, and I've got these all kind of in the same chapter because they seem related or the same section of the book. There are an alarming number of people who see the dog man, and actually Bigfoot too, but more often the dog man, peering in their windows at them. Mm. And, yeah. Yeah, that, and, and normally in that case, the eyes are glowing red, and mm-hmm. often um, the hands, if they're dog men, will look more like hands rather than paws, which uh, most dog man witnesses will say, well, they, they were a little longer than normal dog paws, but they were paws with claws on them. Whereas these ones at the window, um, people will often describe them as having hand-like. And so then you get into wondering if there are really transforming creatures. And I started out right from the beginning saying I don't believe in traditional werewolves. I don't believe that these things people are seeing along the road are some, you know, your, your neighbor who's learned how to, you know, sent on the internet for Werewolf 101 and learned how to do the magic incantations and sacrifices. And, and I don't mean to make light of that because yeah. it, it can get a very, turn into a very dark topic. And mm-hmm. it's one that I do not delve into deeply, nor do I seek out or um, hunt, quote unquote, these type of individuals. If there are people who can turn into werewolves, I don't want to find them, right. honestly. Yes. You know, I, I, I really want nothing to do with it. But it does make you start wondering, um, you know, especially lately, I've, I've been receiving more and more of these reports where people are saying um, I saw something you know that was part wolf and part human that you just sort of have to stop and say well okay am I self-filtering now do I need to take a better look at these and whether I want to get into them or not as immaterial I think if um, there is a growing proportion then my readers have a right to know that and, and they can do with it what they want uh, <clears throat> let's let's real quick for listeners, because I imagine quite a few people are probably slightly similar to me in not being too uh, in tune with the Dogman story. So Beast of Bray Road is kind of what <clears throat> put you on the map. Um, can we talk a little bit about that case, like what the case entailed, what what is the activity at Bray Road, and is the activity ongoing? Sure. Yeah, and... Um it actually is ongoing, and it had been going on for probably a couple of decades before these this one spate of reports that turned into my original news story back in 91-92. It was actually New Year's weekend of 1991-92 when my story first appeared. And it just came to light because um, these different people had been having experiences and then suddenly two of them would have them happen to meet, and there were a few that were uh, related. There's a bunch of people on Bray Road who uh, whose ancestors have lived there, and it's not a scary spook lane. It's like a um, three- to four-mile long road that connects two highways and is a shortcut to the hospital, so it's fairly busy. It's lined with family farms and open fields. There's a little bit of woods, but not many wooded areas, um, 
you know, I was there with one TV crew and there was uh, somebody's uh, bull calf had gotten loose and was standing up on the porch of one of the houses. I mean, you know, it's just very, very bucolic and um, hard to believe that anything crazy would be going on out there. But I had just, as I said, started working for this newspaper and I people that I knew were telling me that there were rumors around Alcorn that people were seeing werewolves on Bray Road. And I thought it was ridiculous. Um, but then some of the people um, were people that I knew. And when I asked around, um, it seemed that there were people who believed this anyway. And so then I found out that our fa- county animal control officer was uh, secretly or at least quietly compiling in this manila file folder marked werewolf the reports and contact information of people who were calling him and saying, I saw this thing. I don't know what it was, but if there was such a thing as a werewolf, this would be it. And then they would proceed to describe something that stood between five and seven feet tall on its hind legs. Most of the time it had dark, shaggy brown fur, um, would, was seen running and walking on its hind legs, holding roadkill in its paws in a way that dogs and wolves don't usually do, sometimes um, chasing a car and pouncing on it, that sort of thing. And so, you know, I showed it to my editor, and once you have a county animal control officer with a file folder marked werewolf, that's news. I mean, that pretty much took it out of our hands as to whether this was news or not. And we didn't think it would be um, really any sort of a noter you know, it, it, that it would involve the notoriety that came with it. We thought maybe two weeks local and it'll be over. Well, in two weeks, the radio stations were calling, the TV shows were coming, Inside Edition came out, um, Sci-Fi's new in search of, and it kind of just was this publicity blitz, totally unasked for or ex- not, and certainly not expected, that got the ball rolling and it's just never stopped since then and because I was publicized as someone who was interested in these sightings and investigating them people started coming to me and this was before people had email generally Um, you know you couldn't just go to the website or look up somebody's Facebook you had to write a snail mail address (laughs) Uh, on an envelope, you know, and mail it or find out the phone number and call me at the newspaper. And they were doing this. And moreover, the media was coming to me because honestly, until probably five or six years ago, um, very few people were interested in chronicling reports of things that looked like dogmen. It was just sort of poo-pooed and um, not many people were interested. And so I kind of felt like the Lone Ranger for a very long time. Uh, working on this. So that's sort of how, um, you know, my involvement grew with it. And um, I worked at the newspaper for 10 years. And then there was another story that I'd uncovered while I was working there. It was a a local historical crime called, and I call it the Poison Widow, a true story of sin, strychnine, and murder. And that was actually published first by the same publisher, um, Trails Books. And then they said, well, what else have you got? And then I said, well, would you believe werewolves? So those those two books both came out in 2003, which was, you know, 11 years after um, the story made its, its debut. So it was a long time. And I never really during those 10 years was thinking about books or anything like that. You know, I was just doing my job. It's just that I finally decided I needed to do it because the attention was ongoing and the interest was ongoing. And I realized if there were that many people still asking, still writing, still calling, still interested, I really should get it down where, you know, in a format where people could access it and um, have some kind of a record of what was going on. So, Linda, do you feel like, in a sense, that this has chosen you? <laughs> <laughs> Rather than, I mean, yeah. clearly you didn't go out looking to, you know, at least at first, you know, write a book about a upright uh, canid. Not at something all. Something or all. It sort of located you, and, and you've taken that ball and ran with it. Yeah, you know, sort of reluctantly. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there was that one point where I was just sort of tired with dealing with it, and um, I gave 
copies of all my files to the local library and said, here, people can write you. And, wow. uh-huh. <laughs> and um, they did it for a while. And then, you know, I mean, it kept up with them, too. And then that didn't seem fair anymore. Mm-hmm. And I will say that I, I always have been interested in unusual, unusual subjects. My dad believed in um, UFOs and, and had a lot of science fiction. And um, I sort of, when I was in my 20s, I sort of undertook my own study of the paranormal when really nobody else I knew was doing it. It was um, just something that interested me and that I couldn't get enough answers from my Lutheran pastor about it. So I set out to find them myself. So I had that background, you know, where I I was interested. I kind of knew where to go and how to investigate these things. So it probably wasn't such a bad fit, you know, considering my, my former interests and, and then the skills, you know, from the, from the newspaper. But again, it was not anything that I ever set out to do for a career. Yeah. Yeah. Talk, let's talk a little bit about Bigfoot specifically. And I'm really interested to hear what you think are some of the most compelling Bigfoot accounts, and you can take that in any direction you want to, but uh, what are some of the uh, eyewitness accounts, and it doesn't just, not just ones that you've received, but overall, uh, what are the ones that really make you think that, um, you know, there's something to all this? Yeah, you know, I really have always um, believed there's something to it, because there are just too many people who have seen them, experienced them, um, and not just long-distance little glimpses or things that could be a stump or whatever, but who've had real interactions with them. Um, I I really think that, um, you know, I know that the, the Patterson-Gimlin film has been controversial and that it has um, its detractors and that there are, you know, claims of hoaxes and all that, but, and I've read all of those things and kept up and I still lean to the side of it being real I, I do think it is I'm I'm a trained artist uh, you know I, I you, you get a feeling if you if you do enough figure studies and life drawings whether it's a bigfoot or a human or what mm-hmm. when something is real it's very very hard to convincingly pull off a full body moving costume of any sort of, of other animal with a human inside and make it look like it's moving correctly and that all the parts to it are congruent and that there's musculature under that fursuit, if it's a fursuit, you know, which mm-hmm. in, in that case I don't think it is. So, you know, I, I kind of still, I really think that that is um, more likely than not to be real. And it's probably the one thing that has convinced more people. That these things have, that these things do exist, than than any other incident. Um, but um, I know it doesn't have to be one that was reported to me. But there there was one report where um, a a couple, a middle aged couple, very nice people. The woman owned her own business. Um, the husband worked for uh, Chrysler as a tech as a technical person um, for many years and was a decorated Vietnam veteran and they were driving over a little bridge in this little Wisconsin community called Honey Creek and there was all of a sudden this eight foot big eight foot tall Bigfoot on the bridge literally I mean less than 10 feet from their car they just luckily they were going slowly enough and it just froze. I mean, it literally was frozen in the headlights, staring at them, making eye contact with them. They saw it perfectly. And they said that um, it looked at them, and they could. They felt that it was weighing as to whether they were going to step in the gas, you mm-hmm. know, and try and run it over, or mm-hmm. could just get off that bridge. And when um, David and Mary, and that's the name, David and Mary Pagliaroni, didn't move it casually put one hand on the bridge railing and then swung both of its feet over just kind of like a you know an olympian going over those um hurdles you know where they put one hand down and then swing their legs over Mm -hmm. dropped about 15 feet to the creek below and then ran off along the creek bed 
and left them just sitting there, just you know, disbelieving what they had seen. Yeah. Now they um, they both they passed very stringent polygraph tests. They were shown in the season one episode of Monster Quest, titled American. Uh, werewolf, which was uh, based on my book, Hunting the American Werewolf, my second book on the topic. Um, but they were not identified in the TV show as having seen Bigfoot. That never came out. They made it seem sort of like it was more of a man-wolf. Mm-hmm. But, it, but if you read the book, it's very, very clear. And, you know, I've known these people for years. Um, since then, I've spent a lot of time uh, with David and Mary. She's been a very good friend of mine. In fact, she was one of my friends that rode around Michigan with me for a week while I was doing my um traveling for weird for the weird michigan oh yeah in the barnes noble series yeah and i've gotten to know her very well you would never meet a more truthful honest pair of folks that just did not make this up and that seeing it through their eyes and getting to know them i just knew that what they saw what and it was such a close-up sighting and you know long enough to get a good look right in the headlights um, and it all made sense. I've had since had plenty of other sightings and correlations around there. Um, so that that to me is is a really strong um, sort of sighting. Um, you know, and I've had my own experiences. So um, much much more so than with the dogman. And I think there probably are more Bigfoots around than there are the dogmen. So I don't know if that answers your question. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, in that case, I mean, it's so close. Right. You know, the 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 idea of misidentification just gets set to the side. If it's 10 feet away from your car, uh, it's, you know, that's sort of a a game changer. And I guess, uh, and a question to follow up on that. And I think I have a sense of the answer already in what you've shared with us, but was it sort of a life changing event for this couple? And do you find that when people have encounters, it does, they have to try and deal with that in a certain way? Yes. Yes. Um, people will very often say, not a day goes by that I don't think of that creature, and no matter which one it is or whether it's a large bird or, or whatever. It impresses people that um, they're forced to confront the knowledge that there are things that no matter how smart we think we are, the average person knows nothing about and that science tells us doesn't exist, but it does, and that... Um, you know, there's more beyond the uh, the normal five senses that we have, and more beyond what um, we are allowed to believe by most authorities. So that that's the shocking thing. You know, people mm-hmm. just say my view of the world just changed, and yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's that's a good example of it. And I hear that very very often. Seth. Yeah. Sorry, I was going over my list here. Um, <clears throat> so so when we get into stuff like uh, lizard men and, and thunderbirds and, um, and and I guess the, the dog men as well, <clears throat> when we start going down that, that rabbit hole, see, for me, some mm-hmm. of that stuff is so um, – I have never taken a report, too. It should be – should be stated so it's it's a little easier for me to be very uh highly skeptical actually i mean to the point of disbelief on my part but when it comes to that stuff how how much of that do you think is a legitimate animal running around in the woods or or not necessarily an animal but some sort of whatever you you credit that to and how much of it you know how many of these different creatures have you gotten to the point where you're just like well i i'm probably going to discount this particular animal well, certainly there are misidentifications, mm-hmm. and for instance, w- one good candidate for that is, um, I've gotten a few of these from Michigan and a few from other states that people will call the deer man, and usually it's a local legend, um, <laughs> and I haven't seen one of those where I'm convinced there is any kind of a consistent creature that would fit the terms of the deer man. Um, deer can, I have seen deer standing on their hind legs going after my bird feeder in my backyard. They can do that. Now, when a deer stands up, it looks different than it does, you know, when it's on all four legs. And um, it might look at you and, and you might think, well, there's a deer standing up. That must be a deer man. 
Um, it's much more rare than dogman sightings or the Bigfoot, um, but it does happen occasionally. And um, I think that probably there are times, like, for instance, I'll get reports that say, well, I, I heard this big rustle, and something was running through the woods, and I could see through the trees there was brown fur. You know, there was this tall brown fur thing running through the woods. Well, that could be anything. Mm-hmm. You know, that could be a deer, and they're just getting glimpses of it. If it's deer come in different colors, really, too. Um, it could be a bear, very likely. Um, maybe it's a dogman, maybe it's a Bigfoot, but you can't tell with any sort of certainty if all you see is the big brown blurry blob. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's hard to say. Now, there are certain things, the, the lizard man, the, especially the winged lizard man, sounds on the face of it very crazy. Um, but on the other hand, for instance, I had a sighting around the, I think it was around uh, 2005, where, uh, excuse me, it must have been, no, it was 2006, when um, these two men, um, it was a 50-year-old man and his 25-year-old son, were driving near La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is on the Mississippi River. It's right where the Black River and the Mississippi River meet. And it, it came right at the windshield of their car. They thought it was going to hit the windshield. And when it got close enough, they could see it lit up in their headlights. And it had bat wings a human-sized, humanoid, brown-furred body, um, these kind of glowing red eyes, and at the very last second, it went straight up, emitted this piercing shriek, and sailed off into some nearby trees. And um, it was the, perhaps it was the acoustics of the shriek. I don't know exactly what it was, but they had to pull over. The son who was driving became physically ill. Actually, both of the men became sick. Um, the father was sick, like in bed for for two weeks, and then I thought, well, this is such an isolated occurrence. But then, when I started looking, I realized that if you follow the Black River up northern northward through Wisconsin, it ends up uh, crossing Highway 13 quite a bit farther north, up near Medford. And when I looked, um, not too long before that, maybe it was the year previous. I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly the year previous or two years before. There was a whole truckload of um, construction workers all riding in this truck and separately but in the same area and about at the same time um, a state patrol officer who saw a very similar creature. It was a, a, they called it a lizard man, but it was um, standing in the middle of the highway, snapped these bat-like wings out from behind its back and just soared off up into the trees in very similar manner to this other thing. And that's, you know, if something followed the Black River right up there, and they were completely unrelated reports. And then I got another report from La Crosse where someone else reported seeing one of these lizard men by the riverbank. So when you start getting this constellation of unrelated reports, um, and you can't, there's absolutely nothing natural that I can think of that might have inspired all of these people to see an upright humanoid with bat-like wings um, and that is a that might I add were the same width or larger than the width of the pickup truck so that you know it's quite a large thing um, that can explain it so it just becomes um, you know another unexplainable category of unlikely things hmm. So when you're when you're investigating things like the uh, the dogman, have you come up with like a, a any kind of historical context for that? Are there are there other historical sightings that you found from like the 1800s or, or previous from your particular like geographical location, like Wisconsin or Michigan or a, any of that area? Is there a historical you know uh, a history of these sightings, or is this more of a recent phenomenon? Well, no, you can find them going back to, like, say, the 1830s. Mm-hmm. And um, in some cases, now, and you have to keep in mind, um, newspapers in the 1800s were prone to right. exaggerating sometimes in order to up their sales. You know, you didn't quite have the same journalistic standards. It was more like a Wild West, free-for-all, who can print the best story and sell the most papers sort of thing. So you have to look at them carefully. But there are a number that seem to stand up to some scrutiny and where um, 
there things are reported as like a a hairy wild man or a man covered with hair all over or um some kind of a beast with ears and that stood up and ran around the cabin that kind of thing and you can find these um in the records um and you can go further back um i have a lot of resources that i really like are the journals of some of the first uh fur trappers and traders that came in especially into um southern parts of canada and along the great lakes and tried to uh, you know there were some that were kind of um amateur ethnographers at the same time that they were doing this trading and they kept diaries they were interested in the um the legends and the the um stories and the knowledge that these native people had and and wrote it down and you can find um their versions of there are a lot of them for instance the bigfoot especially up in the pacific northwest area um very very rich in lore and along uh lake superior on both sides and uh, the canadian cree for instance talked about these people called uh the hairy heart beings and they evidently could interbreed because they were fond of carrying off the native american women um to have for their own purposes and they talked about going to war with them and actually wiping most of them out but there were still bands of them here and there so um that you kind of stop and go hmm and then uh, you know the the natives among um Oregon coast and northern california had their own um tales of they just called them other uh, other tribes of people different they had different terms that denoted the term um different people hmm. and they considered them a different kind of human and again they could interbreed some of them were cannibalistic um but they were characterized as having the hair all over them again so especially for the bigfoot you've got um you know a really good oral tradition among the native americans who lived in the prime areas that we we know nowadays are the prime areas for the bigfoot if if this isn't some sort of uh cryptozoological entity what do you think would be a sort of a natural world explanation for dogman sightings is there anything well what i came up with um you know pretty early on is what i call the indigenous dogman and what i envisioned because they don't look much different anatomically than a large wolf or say a large wolf dog hybrid of today um for and a lot of people say well maybe it was the dire wolf or maybe it was um you know any one of these now extinct breeds of uh um the amphisiads that were sort of part bear part wolf type of things and you don't need to go there because they don't look really prehistoric they just look like super large wolf or wolf dog hybrids except um they seem to have slightly longer or larger paws than um than most of the the wolves and and uh and dogs do today and that you can see as just sort of i mean you don't have to go to evolution or anything like it for that you can just see where maybe on the prairie um there were some of these uh wolves or or wolf dogs or whatever they were that um found it advantageous to stick their heads up above the prairie to see what was coming or um wanted to um you know be able to chase prey and keeping their heads above it whatever and that those animals which had larger longer paws would find it naturally much easier to balance on larger paws and to use their four paws for things like carrying hunks of deer or or whatever rather than having to drag them on the ground with their teeth where anything could come and um easily wrestle it away from them. And so if they were more successful then it's just the process of natural selection where more of them will be born and you'll um you'll see them reproduce and um some of them will keep this trait and wolves are definitely intelligent enough to teach things to their offspring. You know, it might be also partially a learned hunting ploy. Um wolves are really intelligent and um they will come up with um you know uh pack tactics that you you would never dream that animals could do if you if you start reading about those things and so that's that's what um the be- my best scenario for it being 
a natural creature might be. And I've been trying for 23 years. I mean, I talked to experts and wolf naturalists and, and uh, you know, zoo- zoologists trying to find out if it's known that there are populations in the wild that do this, and I've never come across one. So I haven't been able to support it that way. But um, the other thing is that many, many witnesses who see these things on their hind legs also see them, the same animal, on four legs. It's not like once they go upright, that's the only way they can walk. They can go back and forth between. And so they're intelligent enough that if they want to get around without attracting attention, they can just go as a quadruped and people will just say, oh, I saw this really big, weird-looking, gigantic wolf dog thing. But they won't say I saw a dog man because it was on all fours. Hmm. So I, does that answer? I'm, I'm not yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mark, do you want to wrap up here with a question? Yeah, I just have one question that is to satisfy my own curiosity. <laughs> my, um, my family has some ties to Wisconsin. My grandparents on my mom's side lived in Sturgeon Bay for a time. And um, my question mm-hmm. to you, Linda, is are there any weird reports that you know of coming out of the Door County Peninsula? Because if there are, that would be kind of a big deal for me personally and uh, for some of the people who are probably listening to this program right now. Well, <laughs> there was a pig man, of course, in, in yeah. Door County near Brussels. which what? <laughs> Which I think is... Yeah, there are actually three different pigman legends in Wisconsin and, you know, a few others around the country. But uh, the one in Door County was sort of a um, Belgian cultural legend, I think. Mm -hmm. But um, when you get up around that area where you had a lot of early French settlers coming in, fur traders, Jesuits, um, then you get them bringing in the the, uh, very old European werewolf legends in the Loop Guru. And... There are traditions around green, the Green Bay area, right there at Door County, about the Lugaroo, and um, you can find these uh, these the same as in Detroit, Michigan. It has the very exact same thing going on, but uh, you'll you'll find some very old legends in that part, and I've had some modern reports around that area too. Wow, <laughs> any. Uh any Bigfoot action coming out of that area? I mean, it would seem to be pretty unlikely, seeing as how populated the peninsula is these days. But Well, you know, it, it's funny because we've got Bigfoot all through uh, Walworth County in southeastern Wisconsin, and we're probably yeah. more populated because we're closer to Chicago. Sure, and sure. And Geneva is kind of Chicago's little summer playground. Oh, yeah. You would be amazed at the Bigfoot activity going on in southeastern Wisconsin hmm. with Cattle Marine State Forest particularly. Yes, yes. And is, if I'm not mistaken, that is the location of your encounter. Am I correct on that? The right, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, you can look up and see the there's a northern unit and a southern unit and – Anything could be getting around in those kettles, which are deep depressions left by the last glacier. Um, They're full of brambles. The trails are up on the ridges, and people don't generally go down in those kettles. They could be sort of like a death trap if you did. Mm -hmm. You you might not get out again before something could get you. But um, you have to imagine, too, the kettles go beyond the confines of those state parks. They, they extend well beyond, um, so there's, there's a lot more of them than you can just see in the state parks. And very much um, a land of lakes and, and marshes and bogs and all kinds of habitat that these creatures like, more woods than you would think. Mm-hmm. So um, we, we do have a pretty good population, I'm convinced. Yeah. Are you allowed to tease your next book at all, or would you rather keep that under wraps at this point? Well, no, I could say that it does what I'm addressing is all of these stranger things that um, I've sort of filtered out or that just haven't made it into prior books because they were so strange or that I've just suddenly started getting a spate of uh, reports of the same type, and um, I just want to look at them in what I hope is an even-handed way and put them in some context and say, hey, is something else going on? Do we have two kinds of things? Are there natural animals and then supernatural, just in the same way we have flesh and blood humans and um, people still see human ghosts? You know, do we have that kind of a divide or is it all one thing? I don't know. 
Um, but that's that's sort of where I'm going with, you know, are there portals these things can go to and from? Um, is there any evidence for that? How often does that really happen? That's what I'm taking a look at. Okay. And uh, where can people go to learn more about you, Linda? It's all at lindagodfrey.com. Um, there's a books and, and bio page where you can see a list of my books and links on where to find them. Um, there is a page for my actual, my, my one actual published novel so far that I'm working on a sequel for called God Johnson. Um, there is a frequently asked question, kind of a, a fledgling beast page where I'm trying to compile some of the things on my old beastofbrayroad.com site that is sort of defunct. You can still get a few things off of it. <laughs> my blog is the biggest thing there if you want to see what I occupy my time with. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I talk about various topics, and and I explore certain reports. There's a big um, report on Hill, Hillsborough's hairless thing and what it really was. Uh, the giant skeletons of Delavan Lake, which have been, has been uh, have been featured recently on the Ancient Aliens show, that kind of thing. So, um, and you can see my Twitter feed there. It tells you where to sign up uh, to be on my Facebook. I've got um, two different Facebook pages. You can find me on Linda Godfrey. Linda S. Godfrey, and um, there's you can ask to be added to um, my mo the, the Facebook page, or excuse me, group that I'm most active on is called Unknown Creature Spot. Great, and you're on social media too, so uh, right. Facebook and Twitter as well. So right, all right, exactly. Linda, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us. Well, it went really fast. Thank you so much for having. <laughs> Great, thank you, Linda. You guys have a good night. You, you too. too. Thanks so much. Join the conversation at facebook.com slash sasswhat. Find us on Twitter by using the hashtag sasswhat, or you can find me on Twitter at SethBreedsLove. Mark Matsky is on Twitter at Reverend Matsky. Send your letters to sasswhatmail at gmail.com and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Thank mm -hmm. you.